Shaul or Shaul? Is it Shaul? Shaul. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, the reason I did Greek and Latin at university, Shaul Adar, was because yeah. I was good at Hebrew. I went to Cheda from the age of six and I got Hebrew very quickly. Oh, excellent. And then... By the way, yeah. it's okay if you haven't, but have you read the book? I have read enough of it to get by. I've, excellent. Um, and I know I had a quick flick through the history of Betar, so... I want. I did want to read it all, um, but I got sidetracked this week. But it is on my list, and the book is "On the Border: The Rise and Decline of the Most Political Club in the World." Is that your word, or is there a consensus that Beitar Jerusalem is the most political club? Uh, there are other political clubs, like Rangers and Celtics and Lazio and Hungarian and East European teams, but. Betau is a political club in the most political place on earth. So, yes, it's very political and very volatile and very important. I was trying to think of the other clubs that were political. I know there's some in Croatia. St. Pauli is political because uh, the socialist wing of Hamburg uh, are fans of them. Um, Certainly none in England. English football is already... um, given itself over to money and it's that the, I'm, I'm taking a sabbatical from top level English football next year which is helpful because my team is Watford and we're going to go down this weekend but I just it brings nothing to me so I'm always looking for other football teams to look at and Beitar Jerusalem are a team that I've known of they yeah. and it's unsurprising if you haven't heard of them it's because they barely win anything they last won something in 2007. Well, they won a cup, didn't they? But they last won the league in yeah, 2007-8. European, European record is abysmal. Yeah. No, and then we'll... to other Israeli teams. So, uh, and still, they are very familiar around the world. Because of their political links, which you write about in this necessary book. Uh, you have contributed to the blizzard, and I want to start there, just because when I had Jonathan Wilson in the football library... I, I've told this story before, but we picked up the phone at 3.30. I said, how long have I got you for? He said, well, Bake Off is at 8, and we were still talking at 8. All right. He is, he is a very smart man, and not just because he approved... Is it three pieces of yours for the Blizzard? I think much more. Oh. Many more. Gosh, well, I've, I've certainly, certainly got through them. Well, do you want to give a rundown? Uh, I used... I cannibalised some of them for the book, I must say be honest. But I, the first piece I wrote for the Blizzard was about Beitau and it's got all the DNA of the book. It's the mixture of the, I think it's on issue number one. It's the, about the relationship between the club and the city. That and may be where I found out about Beitau. It was, I do remember reading something because I remembered in your book you talk about the, the 2013 issues with the, the Chechen yeah. players. Yeah. There are foreign, uh, foreign players and nobody has a problem with it and Christian players and whichever religion. But the problem was that the owner brought uh, two Chechen players who are Muslims and that caused hell broke loose in, at the club and in the city and Israeli league which I think since then the, the end of Bitar is a normal club. And since then they've been trying to fight for 
it's all in the, the let's call it the normal or normative trends are trying then back the club but without much success so far there are some gains but still the club is very influenced and suffer from the racist ultra support yeah you say that Beitar Jerusalem is football is class war a political tool radicalization and racism so a fun beach read for your summer holiday but I hope I hope this book it would join the ranks of James Montague's books and um Jonathan Wilson's books. Whom did you use as a kind of stylistic reference for the book? Um, yeah, I've read uh, Jonathan and uh, James, and I, I have a huge respect for both of them. Uh, but this book I had in mind for, I think, I've been writing about Britain for 30 years, so, and I lived in the city and worked in the city I wrote it only last year, but it's been work in progress for a very long time. And uh, it is influenced by, I think, stylistically, it's uh, Brilliant Orange by David Wimmer. Uh, yes. The main influence of the connection between football and society and cities and style and uh, lots of social issues. Yeah, this is one of those books where football is only one piece of the jigsaw. It's actually the only book that I've read that acknowledges James Montague, Johnny Northcroft and Ehud Olmert uh, and which has Amos Oz in the bibliography. So that's the calibre of book we're dealing with. Published by Pitch, I hope this book is read and I'm speaking to someone who also has a book out on Pitch this month which I'm not here to talk about. I can't talk about it because this is about On the Border. Um, Are you happy with how Pitch greenlit your idea and helped you get this into print? Yeah, it was a very smooth ride with them. Actually, it did help because of the pandemic and with events around Bitar. Had it been out a year ago, it, the picture was a bit different and misleading because at the time, Bitar looked like getting on track to heal itself. A year later, we know that that move completely failed and the, the club is now on the brink and back in the mire. It's going to be a very long and uh, torturous summer for the fans. We don't know. They will not get relegated this season, but uh, they face uh, a points deduction and they're looking for new owners. So who knows which league they will play next year. Yeah, again, I thought there'd be a happy ending to this book, but... Life isn't all about happy endings. And uh, there's a figure... And you, you list all the crimes of this chap. Um, is it Hogeg? Hogeg, yeah. Hogeg, who may have killed the club. Well, there are suspicions and uh, I think crimes against football are... We can say it out loud. Yes. The rest are only suspicion under investigation of Israeli police. Without a doubt, he managed to kill all good hope and he got more credit than the fans than any other uh, owner in the last 10 years. There was a huge goodwill towards him and he wasted it in shocking way. May bring the end of the club as we know it and, uh, and during this summer. The suspicions are uh, of uh, huge fraud in his uh, cyber business. 
even uh, some uh, sexual misconduct. So everything revolving the seller, he wants to sell the car, but because he's under suspicion and and uh, under uh, investigation of the economic and cyber department of Israeli police, every cell is much harder. His assets are confiscated. It's a bit like the Abramovich situation. Mm-hmm. It takes more than a buyer to sell the platform. Because Beitar are a commu- well, they're a private enterprise, but a community asset, and they've also, you, you call them, and I think um, quite convincingly that uh, Likud, the um, political party, is that... Uh, Likud are Netanyahu. Uh, Netanyahu's, yeah. Yes. So that they, is an enemy these days. That, yes, that party is the political La Familia. La Familia being the supporters group um, who are, are always in the news. How, did you, yeah. how connected are you with that supporters group? Do you know many members? Not personally, but there's a lot of information about them on the media. And I spoke to people who know them very well. So they are in the open. They are, they are on YouTube. If you speak Hebrew, you can find some really shocking and illuminating pieces of riding on the bus with them to to game against an Arab team called Bnei Sakhnin. It's not for the faint-hearted. Mm. And I am. Uh, so yeah, we know about them quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, because. James Montague was saying when he went to Italy to go face to face with with the hooligans, with the, the far right support group in in Rome, um, he had to gain their trust. He really had to go through the ringer, and he was talking no. about how he would just be made to wait, and it's kind of like a psychological test. I can tell you a story. I went to a retard game in December twenty nineteen. It was a run-of-the-mill game with hardly any away fans and very calm. The towers were actually doing reasonably well in the league, so there were hardly any tension or menace in the air. When I walked towards the east stand, which is where La Familia sits, almost exclusively La Familia, there was a guy giving away little books of uh, Psalms uh, and saying uh, read the Bible for the success of the guitar and I walked towards him and passed him about three times, made eye contact he never offered me it once, while all the others got one pretty easily so even without talking to them I st- <laughs> they can, uh, I don't think I would uh, trust them mm. my background is completely different and and my you- political Ideas are are in the open, so I don't think uh, there is a huge gap between us. Yeah, yeah. You were in Jerusalem. You were in Israel um, in 1989. Did you say you only left after a year? Yeah, Came... I lived there for one year, but well, many years after, still living in Tel Aviv and commuting to Jerusalem. Ah, uh, yeah, Tel Aviv is. Tel Aviv was lovely. I've been to Israel a couple of times. Once in March, once in July. Guess which I preferred. But when we went in March, we did Jerusalem, the city wall, Tel Aviv, Haifa, Jaffa, the Dead Sea. Uh, and we just stayed in Jerusalem and Masada. The Mitzvah was on Masada. And then the second time we went, it was so hot. And it was July. Summer is hell in Tel Aviv. I haven't been there in the summer for the last 22 years, though. Ah, so you I stay in... 
stay in North London. And I can tell you one thing, there are some Israelis in North London. You'll have to look hard, but there's a few thousand, aren't there still? I don't know. <laughs> wow, they really do I'm keep not, a low profile. I must say, I think Tel Aviv is overrated. Jerusalem is much more interesting. You, yeah, you start the, the book with a chronicle of just the beauty of Jerusalem streets and the history of it all. So you can't help but be sucked in. Again, you use Simon Seabag Montefiore's book about the city yeah. uh, as I a source. Yes. Even last month, I went there and stayed in Italian Catholic uh, hostel near the old city. Almost got stabbed in a terror attack or zoomed attack. But still, the beauty of the city and some of its parts always... To me. My mother was born in the city, so surprisingly, many of my relationships were from with women from Jerusalem. I don't know why. So I got a very warm spot for the city. No, and me I, too. Because it, it's a city yeah. of three religions. It astonishes me that you've got the Dome of the Rock, a Christian church, and then the Kotel, the Western Wall, the only surviving wall of the ancient temple, whose destruction means that Jews have to do half as many commandments as they should, because there's... I always found that incredible that half the commandments are to do with offerings and because there's no temple, you can't make the offerings. So my, my knowledge of Judaism and Israel will shine through in this show, but it really is about, on the border, the rise and decline of the most political club in the world. If I may add, it's many more religions because every religion has many sects and orders and uh, conflict. Uh, last time I walked into the Haredi zone, the ultra-Orthodox zone, and once you enter it, you see big graffiti on the wall in Hebrew. We demand the Holocaust for the, the Zionists because some Orthodox are opposed to the state of Israel. And then if you walk to the old city, there are clashes between Hamas and Fatah people. And uh, I wrote about the, the, big, the major church. Every centimeter is a war zone between the Catholic and the Orthodox and Armenian and the Pope. It's never, it's, it's ma- many, many more. And if I may add, I really recommend a visit to the Ethiopic uh, church in Ethiopia. It's probably the most beautiful one and most unique one you'll see. And, and I will go in spring or winter when it's not tourist season. It's a marvellous place and Every time, and there are lots of elections in Israel, there seems to be constant um, election footing and constantly campaigning, much like in Britain. And some of the key figures in Israeli politics are in this book, Benjamin Netanyahu and Ehud Olmert uh, are there. Is it, as I read, Ehud Olmert saved the club from relegation at some point? He saved the club many times, but also brought some dubious characters into the frame. In 1975, the club was relegated, but the season was so corrupt and then were fixed. And in a way, you you couldn't ignore it. So uh, relegation were freezed for one season. And that was the initiative of Olmert and another member of the Knesset from the Labour. And since then, Omer brought many, many beneficiaries and owners to the club, tried to bring the Robert Maxwell mm. when he was spending money in Israel, but luckily for the club, it didn't uh, mature. But then he brought others, and 
I can't recall any owner of Beitar who lasted uh, for a reasonable part of time and actually made the club better than uh, we got it. Hmm. It seemed yeah. to me that it's La Familia who really run this club because they're the constant amid the churn of players and managers and owners. Do you get the sense that it's La Familia who holds the owners to account and that they're powerless? In the, in the last 15 years, yes. Vita had a racism problem uh, since the 90s. La Familia were formed around 2005, something like that. And since then, they, they run into the show. Uh, Arkady Gaidamak was the owner, let them in officially. Gave them a room in the stadium, let them hold their banners and uh, help them financially. And since then, it's been impossible to get rid of them. Although we must give credit to the club, they did try. There were some owners, and including Hoged. I want to believe he did it for the right reason. They did try to pick them out or to neutralize them, in, and it cost them heavily. There was a, an owner, a, a chairman called Ritzi Kornfeind, previous goalkeeper and a hero of the team, who suffered mercilessly because of uh, La Familia. They stood outside his home and for hours shouting the most vile chants against his wife and daughter. And, but in the end, Bittar didn't get any help from the police or the state or courts, and La Familia won the fight. And they cost the deal with image, money, and uh, professionally. Keen-eared listeners may well have picked out the surname Gaidamak there. This is the father yeah. of Alexander Gaidamak, who owned Portsmouth. Yeah, Gaidamak moved to Israel in, in 2005 and uh, started splashing money in, without any care. Bittar then bought every good Israeli player, paid him three or four times. The, the usual rate won the two titles and the cup, but uh, then Gaidamak decided to run for mayor and can't recall the exact number, but I think he got three percent of the share of the votes, and that was the end of it. Got insulted, started sulking, and cut his uh, financial support for the team. A few years later, in 2013, he brought the two Chechen players to the club. Some say it was a revenge. I don't think he's so sophisticated. I think he wanted to do business with the warlord of Chechnya and with the support of Vladimir Putin. Football was the way to do that. But the result was horrific for Britain when the civil war broke out in the stand and the club was tainted for racism, I think, for the foreseeable future. Unless they will clean their act from the roots, it will be hard for them to gain any proper sponsorship for an international uh, company or even the Israeli one. So if, or it seems likely when, Beitar Jerusalem go down to the second tier, do you foresee this happening like an Italian club in the 2000s, like Fiorentina? They'll just go down and down and down and they will shrivel um, and they'll... And it'll kind of just be a place where men go to shout on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, uh, it seems horribly uh, pessimistic. I don't think. They still got the very good support. Nothing like they used to have in the 90s. Because many of the fans 
shy away from the racism and it's not a pleasant place to be anymore but still they got a big support all over israel and uh, but i think it could be the the best way for them to start all over again but how to... how can they how can they start all over again when la familia run this club you might as well turn it into la familia fc are there people oh. in the supporters club who are former players, or are they all kind of working class, office workers and self-employed people? There are many good, decent racism haters fans, and some of them even try to form their own club after the Chechen affair. It's called Beitar Nordia, Jerusalem, which is Beitar, is yellow and black, but is open for everybody, fans and players. There is a way for Beitar to change. And it is to sign few excellent Arab-Israeli players. La Familia wouldn't stomach it. The normal fans would support it. And then La Familia can start their own vile little racist club in the fifth, sixth year. Yeah. And normal Beitar can build uh, itself. Maybe I'll hold you to that. Maybe I should look to the good and, and forgive Beta. We, I'm conscious we haven't really talked about the football or any players. Uh, the book is On the Border, The Rise and Decline, not Fall, Decline, of the Most Political Club in the World. This is a club that was founded in 1936, so before the State of Israel was founded. Uh, and then by the 70s, they were one of the most successful. But they were competing with other clubs in Jerusalem for fans. Actually, Jerusalem was an excellent place for them because there they could forge their mentality and image, which is a fighting, street-wise, tough. It's not a Tel Aviv club. Because some uh, internal and maneuvers in Jerusalem, there was only one rival. Tel Aviv, the the, the field was much crowded with Apoel and Maccabi. In Jerusalem, it was only Apoel, and they were always the clumsy, useless. They enjoyed the privilege of being close to the political uh, decision makers, but they never were a successful club. So it was a wonderful place for Britain to grow, especially after the big wave of immigration from Arab countries. Then we go into the Israeli tenses and conflict. The people from Arab countries, we call them Israeli, uh, were kind of neglected and rejected by the Ashkenazi hegemony for many years. And Beitars and outsiders were the wonderful home for these people. Beitar became an outsiders, angry, and very traditional and right-wing club. It didn't start that way. It was much more liberal and open and played against Arab clubs in uh, British mandate time. But over the years, it became much more right-wing and the, the pet club of the Likud, which was very beneficiary for a long time until the Likud lost its way and became the racist hotspot of its own. There is a reason it's called the Israel question. And I see both sides. I'm not as one-eyed as to say that woo Israel's the best in every respect, but it is the great debate about the politics of the state of Israel, I always say it's gone on a diet because it seemed to have gotten thinner and thinner and thinner. Since 48, there was a war in 67, a war in 73, uh, and then the 2000 conflict as well. So it's constantly 
uh, on in war because of its its status as a political. It is a political football, and it is entirely apropos of of the, the, the nature of politics that you have a splinter group rivals, and then it spills over into the stands. Would you have? At English football started to segregate home and away fans in the 1990s. Did Israeli football segregate in the 70s and 80s because of the rivalries? It wasn't that organised, but yes. Uh. Israeli football was violent in the 70s. And Beitar were the most violent team. There was one the extremely violent affair in Tachtikva and two in Tel Aviv in the major stadium against Apollo Tel Aviv, where they actually trashed the, the whole stadium and chased uh, footballers. Uh, some of them were soldiers with uh, an Uzi uh, rifle. There are some uh, legends about it, including how uh, Apollo Tel Aviv striker nutmeg uh, one rioter on the pitch and then scored a goal. Not sure it happened, yeah. but Beitar got uh, really painted past of violent affairs, and in the nineties, uh, pl- crowds are separated and segregated, yeah. which doesn't always help. No, because then it then it's, it creates the tribal rivalry. But I was trying to imagine in the way that in the 70s and 80s, before I was born, football fans would take the away end or take take various ends and it became like a battlefield and then people were scared away and it took Hillsborough to bring the Premier League upon us. Do you have an English football team you support, by the way? Only a Israel. Uh, and in fact, if you go to page uh, issue 22 of the Blizzard, I think I may have read this piece. I don't remember yeah, um, the content, but I remember reading about Apoel Sheva. Yeah, I wrote about how we won the title for the first time in 2016 after 40 years. Yes, yeah. for which congratulations. Unfortunately, you're probably overrun by the Leicester City victory. So the ha- I suppose the reaction in Israel would have been it was as if Leicester City had won the Premier League, Besheva winning the Israeli Premiership. I lived in Leicester for one year. I had a season ticket for Philbert Street. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it was, I enjoyed both. But since then, we had uh, three titles in a row. We won the Cup. We had one wonderful run in Europe. So we're doing better comparative to Leicester. We are one of the best three teams every year now. So, that, Which and, is great. Uh, and does that mean that you also hopped into the Conference League this year? Or are you good enough for the Europa League? The Israeli champion starts at the Champions League qualifier and then uh, the other three teams go to the conference, right. uh, which we didn't make it last year, unfortunately. Well, uh, the last, uh, as we say every year, game. next year in Beersheba. Yep, we've got the lovely stadium. You must visit it next time. I will have to go with you and I'll have a copy of your book, On the Border, The Rise and Decline of the Most no, no, Political no. Club in the World. Bring uh, the, my book about Apollo Besheva. There is. It is it in Ivri- a book about Besheva, yeah. Is but it in English Hebrew. or Hebrew? Just Hebrew, yeah. Ah. It's a very, very well, niche. Well, that means yeah. I'll have to learn properly to read it. I can do... Uh, it's worth the effort. Uh, well, I, can, I can busk it 
And I, I can probably oh. read it with the dictionary because I'm used to reading parallel translations of Latin and Greek text, which is a horrible sentence to say, but it's true. Um, oh. So, and, and I've not got much to do the next 10 years. So uh, give us the title of your book in that case, the, the Besheva one. It's a poem by Besheva, the biography. Fantastic. And that goes into the football library, which holds, holds, holds every book by Jonathan Wilson, James Montague, Jonathan Northcroft, uh, and we might as well put Amos Oz as well, because... <laughs> Amos Oz's book about Jerusalem is, is a wonderful read about life in Jerusalem. I, 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 little me recommended full heartedly. It, uh, uh, tale, of, uh, tale about love and darkness. Yep, that's right. It's in the it's in the uh, bibliography. A tale of love and darkness from two thousand and five. Yeah. And I must put right the fact that I have not read any Amos Oz. Uh, so uh, that is yeah. my my knowledge. Yeah. There we go. So that's in the football library. Um, tell me about Uri Malmilian. I'm in the right age to know about it because I saw his rise. He was a kid who grew up in uh, Jerusalem before 1967, before the Six-Day War, where the city was parted by war and mines and snipers. And he grew up in a community just beneath the walls of the old city, which were under Jordanian rule, and some separation wall, which were mandated by the Jordanian army wasn't always the most safe place. People got hurt, including a kid from his neighborhood where he used to play football. And he was a prodigy, probably the first major football star of Mizrahi origin. He's from Kurdish uh, family, a traditional, and he grew up uh, near the YMCA, if you know Jerusalem. Uh, I spoke to a player who played with him, and he said he could read again two, three moves before anybody else had the eyes in the back of his head. And he took Israel by by the storm in 1976. He was a truly exceptional player, not strong enough, I think, to compete in modern football, but very silky with wonderful uh, touch, very good with three kicks and probably the best midfielder of his uh, time. And he's the player responsible for the rise of the town in the 70s. Yeah, I'm just looking at his figures. He played for 17 seasons, about 500 appearances, and he never never left. He retired in 1993, so he never got to test it out against... He moved to Maccabi Tel Aviv in the end, because for financial reasons. Always were uh, very misorganized, and he earned much more with Maccabi Tel Aviv. Had to make a move in the last uh, two or three seasons of his playing career. Was it like when Messi left Barcelona last year? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Unless, uh, unlike other players, he is very popular with all fans. I don't think you will find anybody who doesn't appreciate his talent and doesn't like him as a person. He's a very humble, very kind and pleasant person. And without him, Beitar would still be a mediocre club from the outskirts of Israeli football. He's the one who transformed the club. I'm trying to think. Johan Cruyff and I, if yes. I may exaggerate. 
Mm, which, or, which, of course, you can, because you've written the book yeah, on it. Dennis and Burkhoff and Arsenal. Yeah. It, which begged the question, when I found out that he'd played for Beitar Jerusalem, I did think, well, they hired so many managers. At what point would Uri Mamilian have gone to manage again uh, for Beitar? And he lasted a couple of months. Yeah, because he was a professional as a player with high demands for for many, everybody around the club and himself. And then as, as a manager, they, he found out that the club was running an amateurish Financially, it was... Rotten is the great. It's a great description, and I don't think he found players at his own level there, and he preferred to quit, which was the right decision for him. I'm only sad that I haven't heard of him. I've heard of Ronnie Rosenthal. I actually have a great Ronnie Rosenthal anecdote, which yeah. um, I, his son Tom was an under eighteen scholar at Watford. And I went yeah. to do an interview or watch an under-18s game at London Colney. And um, he said to me, I'm not going to do the accent. Um, I could do a scout for Ronnie Rosenthal. He said, are you a scout from Southend? No, 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 I'm from Watford. And I know your son is playing. And we had a little chat and about how I, was ex- I used to support Spurs and I knew various things. And he, seemed, he was very, very generous. And in fact, you write a great piece about his role in Liverpool's league triumphs yeah. in issue 18 of the blizzard but ronnie seems to be an example of the player who left israel i think he was one of the or zahavi zahavi, zahavi. one yeah. of zahavi's clients and there were a couple yeah. ari cohen was he another one avi cohen yeah, yeah. the light avi cohen uh, actually i i know ronnie very well i wrote a book about liverpool as well with ronnie as uh starting point or the axis of the book when he went to Liverpool after the Hillsborough disaster and gave them the last push to win the last title until they won recently. So I spoke with many guys from his time, including Dalglish and Sunes and other people. And uh, Ronnie is a very kind and humble person. And uh, he, he was one of the first who broke out to Europe. Yeah. Uh, Uri was a little bit too early and I don't think strong enough. Yeah. Physically. Yeah. Uh, yes, and if you're playing against like Jan Molby and, and the, yeah. the, the strong midfielders, in certainly in England in the 80s, he might have done something in Scotland. Um, <laughs> I don't that... think he would last two games in Scotland. Okay. <laughs> but we, we've had other Israelis. Yossi Benayoun did very well as yeah. well. Um I didn't realise as well, in the Israeli league, you're only allowed six non-Israelis or non-naturalised Israelis or yes. in, the, in the squad. Does that make the league better, worse, or does it not matter? It's hard to find with, with the budget. It's not always easy to find six worthy foreigners. But it is the, the backbone of every good Israeli team, the foreign players, without a doubt. If you look at, it, at the teams who did well in Europe, they had outstanding foreign players who, in many cases, moved on to greater and better things in Europe, like uh, Yakubu with Maccabi Haifa and then uh, many teams in England, or in Apoel Beersheva, winning team... Uh, uh, Tony Wakeme moved to Turkey and won the league this week with Trabzonspor. 
both excellent players and uh, you know they stood out in the Israeli league but mm-hmm. uh, six players and some neutralized player can you can add up with seven eight players it's quite a lot for for a team we're talking yeah. in the week of the two Champions League semi-finals. Last night was the berserk remontada yeah. by Real Madrid. <laughs> Yay! So once yeah. again, it's 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 a no for Pep Guardiola and his quest for another Champions League. Is he a fraud? Some idiot will will write that piece today. But I'm more concerned with what David Goldblatt said in his book. Um, the Age of Football, which actually has Guardiola and Klopp on the front, which is very interesting because it's not players. He says that certainly in Africa, it may well be the case in Israel too, people tend to stay away from the domestic games because they get a satellite feed and they're able to watch um, the big European matches and the domestic matches in Europe. And especially because Beitar are not doing so well at the moment. Maybe there is a, a propensity for Israeli fans to support Liverpool, Man City, Man United. Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. It's a struggle between for all little clubs. On on weekends, you can turn on your TV in Israel at one o'clock and watch football till midnight from all major leagues in the world and the same on Sunday. It's non-stop and very cheap compared to England. And you can see every game from the English league, actually. Every goal almost live. And then the German, Spanish, Italian, some French football, the Dutch, it's too much, actually. So the Israeli teams have a fight on their hands. But still, football is not just about the quality. Nobody, how many teams around the world can... uh, can produce a better match than the first uh, City Real game. Very few. It's about connection to the community, to the city, to the state, to your childhood experience, to your to the home that you grew in. To for me, it's hard to skip a Bersheva game, even though I live in London. It, it, emotionally, it's much more important for me. Uh, football is not men kicking uh, a ball. Yeah, or or just the, how good they kick in the ball. If that was the case, there would be only the English league and the Champions League. But all over the world, uh, as we seen this week in in Trabzon in Turkey, I think few millions of people came to the street, mm-hmm. and they're not going to win anything in Europe, I presume. But for them, it's uh, it's much more important to win the league after thirty years. Years. And there's not one but two books about Turkish football that have come out recently. One is called Welcome to Hell, which is behind me. And there's another social history. And there is a growing batch of books in my football library. And you get your football library card. Uh, I don't know who you want on it. You know, you have an icon of a, like a silhouette of someone on the card. Uh, usually uh-huh. I used to offer people Brian Glanville the football writer Brian Glanville, but you can choose who you want on your card. Sorry to leap it on you. As you think, I will just remind the listener on the border, The Rise and Decline of the Most Political Club in the World by Shaul Adar is out now on pitch. Is it 1699? I think so, yeah. You should know better than me, yeah. The information is all... You know where to get the information. But um, yes, on your card. Uh, Brian is a great inspiration. I sat with him throughout many games in England, so 
it's always a good choice and work with him as an editor in Israeli magazine, which I wrote about in the book. We were based in Jerusalem. Had many Jewish jokes from him. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have, I, I spoke to his son, Mark, whom you may have met. Yeah, I He's know a Mark very fan. well. Um, yeah. But his, his book, The Goldberg Variations, is so-called because Brian was christened Brian Goldberg. And as with most, he wasn't the first Jewish person to change his surname to be less Yiddisher. Um, and so I do recognise every Jewish writer, especially in the diaspora, because there aren't many of us now. Um, did you know in the census in 2001, there were more Jedis than Jews in the UK? must confess and and say that uh, I had the choice uh, which religion, religion to take oh, no. and I, I, I ticked without religion so maybe that's why I would love to read but obviously there's tons of memoir in this book because you've been a, an observer yeah. of Israeli football for 45 50 years almost yeah, well, let's say 50 years 50 yeah. years <laughs> almost as long as Glanville but uh, I, I celebrated his, I had a really fun time researching Brian and his life and work and reading a lot of his stuff because he's turned 90. He's not well at the moment, but I did get to speak to Mark, who was very loving uh, about yeah. about Brian. So it's great that he's there. Um, David Pleat, the former manager of Tottenham and Luton, has a book coming out later this year. Have your paths crossed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sat next to David a few times in at Watford, so yeah, it was an interesting game. I know Mark very well. I interviewed him about his book way back in 2000 and something, three or four. Yeah, it's an old book, yeah. Yeah, we got different views about Millwall, though. I think he knows. No one likes him. He doesn't care. But uh, one of my favourite books by Michael Calvin, his book Family, um just portrays the, the well obviously the family nature but once you're in you're in and it's very difficult to to come out again and football we see I don't like the aspect because I'm a Watford fan and at the moment Watford are a mess and they almost need to go back to the drawing board and they're laughably they're saying oh maybe we need a young English manager now yeah we also need young English players and not to make a player who three years ago was in the final of the Champions League, a captain with a relegation release clause. That's the problem. Do you, how often do you watch Watford these days? Because it's not far from you in North London. Uh, until the pandemic, I saw them a few times. I saw, I missed the, the big win against Liverpool. I almost, I thought of going there in the end, I couldn't, unfortunately. I was in the previous game against Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw a few games. I saw Ronnie Rosenthal playing there in 1996. That was what was I was going to mention, by the way, because Ronnie yeah. was persuaded to drop down to the third tier by Graham Taylor, got Watford up yeah. and then had a bad injury, so had to just watch as a squad player as Watford went up yeah. to the Premier League for the first time under Graham. Did you did you cross paths with Graham Taylor as well? Yeah, yeah, uh, for for the Liverpool book yes. and uh, then asked him about his England years and he's uh, one of the most warmest, kindest, sincere interviewees I ever had. I was extremely sad when he passed away. Yeah, we had the, um, the service was on St Mary's Church on Watford High Street. I didn't go to it but it was, there were people standing outside in the rain because it was a February day. 
Yeah. Uh, and his kind of representative on earth, Luther Blissett, now has the keys to Watford. He's like an honorary... What is the award? When, when you can drive sheep through the town. That's a privilege we all need. Well, hopefully <laughs> next season we can drive them into the pond having succeeded. Um, but I'm, go- I'm actually going out now to, to vote, for, to exercise my democratic right to vote oh. for the mayor of Watford. Oh, for you. Um, and that is a privilege that is not lost on me um, because politics in this country, however you think of it, it's not Israel. And I've, even the football is political in the, the most magnificent country where I'd love to go back. And one day I will read your book in the original Hebrew. What, is, what are you working on next now that you've got this book on the border out into the world? Are you working on short pieces or have you got another idea? I got my day-to-day journalism, but uh, I had three books on football. It's a trilogy now. I probably I'm thinking of a travel book next, unless who knows. Let's see where this book will take me. It's only out in. It will take me to new and exciting places. I'm sure it will bring some really angry people. Some of them already made up their minds about the book only from the name of it, which is quite exceptional. Some, after one tweet, some people call it anti-Semitic book, and some said it's uh, uh, an Israeli Zionist propaganda. Mm-hmm. And they gather it just from on the border. So I'm sure there, there will be people who will enjoy it, but there will be some people who wouldn't like it, but it comes with the territory. Well, if you write about such a sensitive subject, it will happen. Yes, and I I look forward to hearing all the interviews that you do for this. You must have quite a busy schedule lined yeah. up. Yeah, today was quite busy. Ah, well, thank you for squeezing me in for an hour. I hope uh, you can. Thank you for for letting let me talk about Jerusalem and football and the book. No, I have to. Three my uh, favourite topics. One, I've, I've done over 200 of these. All I know is just to prompt and prod and then just sit back. I'm like a waiter serving an hors d'oeuvre and then just letting the, the guest tuck in. But I hope you get out into the sun in North London, maybe up to Hampstead Heath, because it is the most <laughs> remarkable day in Watford. The sun is shining uh, like the Beitard, yeah. like the, actually, De Beersheva wear yellow shirts. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> we red and white. Ah, well, God forbid yellow. It's it's the colours of all the wrong teams. Sorry. Quite right. Well, that the great thing is I can just edit that out so to make me not look embarrassed. But yeah, thank you so much, and, and I hope our paths cross very soon. Um, yeah, let's meet up for Hummus in the old city of Jerusalem. One it, cold day. It's a date, and yes, one and yeah, like cold day, twenty-five degrees. Just like